Hey everybody, have you ever asked for a sign? You're puzzled about something in life, you have dreams in life, you're having a problem with somebody in life and you, you can't figure out how to resolve it or deal with it or proceed with it and, and so you ask for some sort of sign from God. From, from anywhere, just so you know what to do. I think that's a really common, possibly universal human experience. Have you ever asked for a sign? I myself tend not to do that very much. I go more with the idea that, that God gave us really good minds to figure things out. God gave us really good hearts to intuit things. And, and so I try and trust those things. But of course, even there, you end up asking for a type of sign. In other words, um, uh, you always wonder, is there one more question I should ask, one more list I should make? Is there one more person I should consult with? In, in other words, at some level, we're not satisfied with our own instincts or resources, or we doubt them, or we, or we know they're incomplete at some level, and, and therefore we just want a little something more to be able to figure it out. So whether that's a matter of gathering more information or literally asking for a sign from God, I think we all know what it's like to ask for a sign. But what would happen if you did and you actually got it? That's uh, today's first lesson. We're going to talk a little bit about both of our readings this week. But the first lesson was that a story about Elijah, the older guy, and Elijah, his protege, his uh, mentee. And, and it's a story about of a lot of different things, but mostly it's, it's a really human story about Elisha's, the younger one. It's a story about Elijah's grief, because Elijah is leaving, and Elijah knows it. And as often happens in life, I think especially with people who have, have had a full life, Elijah's done. He's, he's ready to move on. He isn't... Um, afraid to have his life end. Uh, Elisha, on the other hand, the younger person, uh, he is having a really hard time with it. Uh, and, and in the progression of events in the story, you see what grief is like. He, he, he won't leave Elijah. He, he clings to him. He, he doesn't want to lose track of him. When, when other prophets come to them and say, you know, you know your teacher is leaving you, uh, he, Elijah doesn't want to hear about it. He doesn't want to talk to them. Grief has this tendency to make our world smaller, uh, and understandably so. It's, it's just hard. And, and so we cling, and so we, we close in on ourselves in our grief. And, and then... Finally, towards the end, um, Elijah focuses, in a sense, all of his life energy onto this Elijah. When I, Elijah says to him, is there anything you would ask of me? Elijah says, I'd like a double measure of your spirit. He wants, if he can't hold onto Elijah physically, he wants to hang onto his spirit and doubly so. And, and so that's what happens. Elijah says, well, it'll, you ask a hard thing. It's kind of like this Yoda moment. Well, you ask a hard thing. Uh, but he says, if, if you see me ascend into heaven, it'll be granted to you. And Elijah sees him ascend into heaven. And, and the wish is granted to him. So here's one of those unique Bible stories where somebody, at some level, asks for a sign of God. Can I be given a double measure of your spirit? The sign is, well, if you see me going to heaven, you'll get it. It happens. How does that turn out? What we can tell by reading the rest of the story is that Elijah 
is never even half the prophet that Elijah was, even though he was given a double measure of his spirit. In other words, what Elijah probably should have been asking for was a double measure of his own spirit, so that he could be a fuller person complete unto himself, rather than trying to be double of what somebody else had been. That usually doesn't work, and it didn't work in this case. He asked for and he got a sign from God. And, and yet, it didn't turn out the way he had hoped. This is, I think, how it kind of goes in life. We don't always know what we're asking for. Isn't, isn't it true, when, when you think about it, that a lot of times in life, you, you see somebody else, and, and you think, oh, I'd love to be like that. I'd love to kind of carry myself like that person. I'd love to be uh, able to work a room like that person. I'd love to be... Um, uh, technologically savvy like that person or athletic like that person. But the thing is, you, you don't know that much about that person. You, you don't know the sacrifices they took to get to that point, and maybe that's a, that, you know, that would be a good thing to work for. But you, you also don't know the deficits and emptinesses of that person's life. And if you knew them, perhaps you would have no desire at all to walk in their shoes. We don't always know what it is that we're asking for. So then perhaps we, we don't need to ask for a sign, but what should we do? That's going to get us to today's gospel lesson. But first, let's take a little interlude with some good news. So my news aggregator, otherwise known as Barbara Horner-Eibler, is always looking for stories that are positive and encouraging because she and I both kind of think in a world which is really tough, you need some real-life examples of where things go well and where people help each other. So she was reading a story this week that was printed in the Washington Post, but it happened in Minneapolis. And it happened in uh, in an urban neighborhood. And, uh, you know, this is a multi-page article. Here's the highly condensed version. A woman buys a house in that neighborhood like 20 years ago. And then maybe three or four years after she buys it, some fraudster comes along and convinces her to sell her house to him, and then she rents from him, which she does, unfortunately. And he ends up going to jail uh, on fraud charges. He does this like fraudulently to like 45 people. Nevertheless, the house then gets sold to someone else, and the woman is still renting from this other person. And over the years, the rent keeps going up and up and up. Uh, her income starts going down and down as she grows older. And eventually, it's becoming unaffordable for her. And at the same time, the owner of the house sees that the neighborhood's gentrifying, and he can get a lot more money just by selling the house. So he says to the woman, you're going to have to move out. I'm going to sell the place. And she doesn't really have enough money uh, to go anyplace else, and her... Um, Uh, her options are few and far between. She's not that far from homelessness. Now, the cool thing about this story is that she's been invested in this neighborhood for years. People know her. She's been talking about this for years. And so the neighborhood rallies behind her. They connect her to some government and private services that help. Uh, They do fundraisers in the neighborhood. They have to raise almost the full purchase price of the house because uh, she's not really going to qualify for a mortgage on much of any of it. So they're aiming for $250,000. And how much did that neighborhood raise for her? $75,000, which is really cool and really awesome, but not close to $250,000. So it still looks like she's going to lose her home. Then what happens? Does a billionaire come along and fund the rest of it for her? No, that does not happen. 
What does happen? A church in the neighborhood comes along and says, we can help. They raise some funds. They gather some reserves. And they are the ones who put up the rest of the money so that the house can be bought. And they're able to do that because they're invested in the neighborhood. And when you think about it, that's a tough faith decision. Do you invest that many resources in one person? Or do you spread those resources out over a lot of people? That's a tough call. And, and the only way you could make that decision is if you are invested enough in the neighborhood that you can feel the, the read of the neighborhood and what is important to the community and decide accordingly. And we trust that that church did. That's good news for that neighborhood, which celebrates it, and particularly for that woman, and uh, good for the people of God for being part of the solution. How well invested are our uh, two campuses in our neighborhoods, do you think? Uh, could, could we do that? Maybe not necessarily the dollar amount or a home like that, but would we know our neighborhoods well enough to know what the needs are uh, and, and help respond to them in some way? And, and do we do that with any consistency? Um, what I would say to that is, there, I think there are two ways that happens. One is, is our structure allows us to be in the neighborhood. We've got these two buildings. Um, I think we are doing well and getting better all the time at making sure our buildings are open to community groups. Our buildings are used weekly by a Boy Scout group, group by a community bridge group who's playing right now as we're recording this, uh, by five uh, recovery and support groups uh, for addictions and for different losses in life, for an LSS, Lutheran Social Services, uh, project that takes place in our building, and, and to, for two uh, East um, uh, Indian uh, worshiping communities, one Hindu, one Christian, uh, for the Hmong farmers that farm the land at the Christ the King campus. We are invested in our neighborhoods in a lot of ways through our structure, and, and we pray that we can do even more of that. But maybe that's the easy part, right? The harder way of being invested in our, our neighborhoods is, is all of us, uh, every one of you watching this, and, and me too. In, in other words, it's, it's really on us to, to live in these neighborhoods around these churches, to, to live in them well enough that we know some of the people and, 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 and therefore be aware of what's needed and also be enough of a person of faith that every once in a while people notice that, that we're kind of motivated by our faith. And, and then we can become an invitational people. You know, check out my church. Uh, we're great, I think, at welcoming people who just pop through the doors, but ultimately churches are both about welcoming and inviting. And to me, you don't invite so much with your words as with your actions, um, but your actions need to be rooted in, in the neighborhoods and the lives of the people around you. Are, are we a church that knows and understands its neighborhood? Uh, it's a great challenge to have. How, how can we be better at it? This gets us to the gospel lesson today. Uh, Jesus is leaving his neighborhood. He's leaving Galilee and he's heading to Jerusalem where he knows trouble awaits him, but he sets his face. He's going there anyway. And the first thing that happens is they try and spend the night in a Samaritan village and they're rejected. They're thrown out. At which point two of the disciples want to draw down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritan village. Luke's gospel doesn't even tell us what Jesus says to that. He doesn't spend enough breath on it to really go into it. He just rebukes the disciples and they keep going. They're not going to nuke this village. But the, the powerful thing about the story is not only does he not destroy the village that's rejected him, 
But in the very next chapter, chapter 10, he's going to make the hero of maybe one of his best-known parables a Samaritan. He's going to tell the parable of the good Samaritan. So now think about all of the racial and ethnic and religious violence and discrimination uh, in our world. And, And imagine Jesus in this particular situation. His approach to having been discriminated against because he's a Jew is to turn around and in the very next chapter tell a story which made the person who had discriminated against him, a Samaritan, the hero of the story. And what gives with that? Is he just co-opting over to the Samaritans? Or, as is the case in Jesus' ministry, is it kind of this defiant love, which says, even if, even if that person didn't love me, it's not going to stop me from being able to talk about the possibility that that human being could be an awesome human being. And see, this is the power of what it is to be a neighbor in our communities, which is rather than vilifying the people that hurt us or push us away, though there is always a place for justice and defending others who are oppressed unduly, nevertheless, in each of us as individuals, there needs to be something within us that defies that discrimination or that hurtfulness or that forgetfulness or that unwelcomeness or whatever it is, and to be able to turn around and say, that person can be a hero. Uh, They can be the Good Samaritan as well. It is a fascinating, powerful thing about what Jesus tries to teach us. And and then the other powerful thing is that then all these random people come up and and they have their drama and they have their excuses and they have their delays as to why they should like maybe be a part of what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus calls each one of them out on it. You know, don't really need the drama, don't really need the excuse, don't really need the delay. Just like dive into it or not. That's challenging, right? I mean, he's not going to take our drama. He's not going to take our excuses. He's not going to take our delays. Are you in? Are you going to be a neighbor or aren't you? What's the answer to that? Because that's, that's a tough one, right? And especially in the life of faith. It's really easy to put Jesus off. It's really easy to put the community off uh, and let other things get in the way. And Jesus says, hey, can't do that. It seems hard, right? You'd much rather ask for a sign from God. But Jesus gave us the sign. He set his face to Jerusalem. He said, you know, it's going to be being on the road of life, and you're going to run into people who frustrate you, disappoint you, discriminate against you, uh, but you're still going to be a neighbor in the midst of that. That seems so hard, impossible to us. All I can say is this. When you read Luke and his sequel, the book of Acts, there is almost no sense, ultimately, of, of hardship in it. And instead, there are, uh, there's, there's like one exclamation point after another. There is the Christmas story, the shepherds leave in great joy. There's the story in this obscure village where what, Jesus heals this woman who's been crippled for 18 years, and the religious authorities didn't want to deal with it, and he heals her, and the crowd erupts, uh, not just because she's been healed, but because all the forces against her have been changed. In, in the book of Acts, there's the Ethiopian eunuch who has suffered such grievous discrimination and personal hurt in his life. And when he finds out that the scriptures are about him and the type of things that he has suffered, he he explodes. He wants to be baptized that instant. And most of all, on Easter evening, when these two people walk away in disappointment um, from Jerusalem, Jesus joins them. They don't perceive it, but when he breaks bread with them, they recognize him and they say, our hearts burned within us when he was with us. In other words, there, there is something infectious and, and filled with light 
and, and filled with defiant goodness in the face of hurtfulness in our life that allows us to be a legitimate neighbor in our neighborhoods, a force for good in a world that, that, that for whatever reason seems to want to fixate on bad. We don't have to be there. We don't have to live in that neighborhood. We can live in the one that Jesus points his face toward, which, guess what, is yours and mine. May we be blessed this week to live where Jesus lives. Done.